Walter Kudridge. Walter studied and then taught history at Sydney University. Since moving to Canberra, he's lectured at the Australian Defence Force Academy and worked as a historian for the Australian War Memorial, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Museum of Australia, and uh, more recently, the National Library of Australia. Walter's research and publishing has covered many areas, including medieval history, the philosophy, history, and ethics. He currently lectures on ethics as part of the animal law course given by the University of New South Wales and delivers history, philosophy, cultural studies and Latin courses at the Australian National University Centre for Continuing Education. We're very lucky uh, to have uh, Walter here. Um, recently he was able to be one of the co-curators of the 1968 Changing Times exhibition which is on show uh, at the moment in our exhibitions gallery. This exhibition uh, explores what was happening in the world, Australia and Canberra in 1968. One of the areas that Walter worked on in the exhibition was the section dealing with Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War. Today, Walter is going to focus on the National Service Scheme and how that was seen by the Australian public in 1968. I'd like you to join with me in welcoming Walter to tell us more about this topic. Thank you. G'day everyone. Thanks Guy. I have a very weird feeling uh, that Guy was actually talking about someone else, uh, someone more substantial than me, um, but I'll give it a go anyway. Um, let me just say before I start, Guy, what a pleasure it was uh, working with you and your team on this exhibition. I learned a lot from you. Uh, you fellows, you people, really know how to put an exhibition together, so congratulations. I'm going to talk about Australia and the Vietnam War with particular reference to 1968 and, as Guy mentioned, to our exhibition on 1968, Changing Times. My theme is going to be one of turning points or a turning point. It's acknowledged that uh, 1968 was a turning point in the Vietnam War itself largely on account of the immediate and long-term consequences of the Tet Offensive earlier that year. What I'm going to uh, concentrate on today, though, is the idea that 1968 was also a turning point in attitudes within Australia to, towards the Vietnam War and towards our involvement in that conflict. I'm especially going to concentrate on the growth in and the nature of opposition to the war and especially opposition to national service or conscription. I thought it might be interesting per se and also perhaps heuristically useful to draw some comparisons between the 1960s, 1968, and the World War I era in, in Australian history. Uh, during World War I, as you know, uh, there were two referenda on the subject of conscription, and these were divisive, bitterly contested event events. And both in World War I and in 1968, the central issue, of course, was that of compulsory military service overseas. With that in mind, I want to go straight to an item from the exhibition. 
if I can manage these arrows. Bullseye. Uh, this is a, an anti-conscription uh, pamphlet produced in 1968 by uh, Bertha Walker. Bertha Walker was a, a Melbourne-based unionist and uh, labour activist. She draws uh, on the World War I uh, anti-conscription campaigns and she adduces a relevance between those campaigns and her own times. She, in fact, talks about an anti-conscription tradition uh, in Australian history. Now, when we're using the word tradition, we're implying relevance and continuity. This is what I want us to be thinking about today. I think that there are some important parallels between what was going on in World War I in Australia and what was going on in the, in the 60s. But I think that there are also uh, differences, uh, discontinuities. In the 1960s, we're talking about different times, of course, uh, a different society and different ways of thinking. So let's just begin by briefly uh, uh, rehearsing some of the uh, attitudes to war and, conscri and conscription in World War I Australia, especially those surrounding the defeat of the, the two referenda. In World War I Australia, we have a, a particular significance attached to uh, social class and religion which were more or less the same thing. The middle classes in World War I Australia were Protestant, pro-empire, pro-war and pro-conscription. In contrast, the, the working classes uh, were Catholic and therefore potentially at least uh, pro-island, uh, therefore anti-empire, uh, anti-war and anti-conscription. The Catholic vote was in fact divided on the, the matter of conscription, but it was largely, largely anti. We also have within working class Australia in World War I, uh, left-wing ideology, especially within the, the union movement. This, was, this ideology is uh, essentially Marxism. Uh, it was felt that class solidarity which was seen as being intrinsically international, should, uh, should trump, you can't even use that word now, can you? Um, <laughs> should outweigh uh, nationalism. With that in mind, let's go forward to the Vietnam War era, a different, to a large extent, a different so uh, social and uh, ideological environment. It's easy to, uh, to get um, head up, become interested in the anti-war uh, movements that pertain to the Vietnam War. But of course we mustn't forget that there were significant, strong, and for a while these were in the majority, pro-war uh, movements, pro-war thinking uh, in Australia. Uh, these were of course different from the ones in World War I though. Uh, the pro-war forces, if they are forces, um, during the Vietnam War period were united by an anti-communist ideology. During the 1950s, fears of communism were widespread in, in the Western world. And I guess 
during that period, they entered what we might refer to as the middle class consciousness. It's strange to us now, isn't it, when we think that uh, the threat of communism was, was taken seriously, um, the idea that uh, the world might be dominated by communism was seen as a, as a real possibility. Uh, it seems like a relic, a relic from another time, doesn't it? Something really archaic now. Moving to the anti-war uh, forces uh, during the Vietnam period, we have um, a strong movement or strong movements, but uh, something, a phenomenon that wasn't ideologically monolithic. I think. Uh, we have two new themes as well, uh, if we're comparing it to World War I, age and education. And there's overlap, Venn diagram style, between, uh, uh, with those two uh, new themes. When I'm talking about age, of course, I'm, I'm talking about the idea of a generation gap, which comes from the 1960s. Uh, an emphasis on youth culture, hippies, pop music, um, a general anti-war sentiment within the counterculture of those times. When we come to education, uh, we're talking about the levels of education, to be sure, but we are also talking about the importance of universities and university life. Universities as a site for anti-war sentiment and anti-war activity. There was a proliferation of universities from the late 1950s in Australia, which brought uh, education and university life uh, into the, uh, I guess, social mainstream. So my main point at this stage is that this uh, growing anti-war sentiment was a multifaceted thing and to a large extent it transcended traditional classes, uh, uh, religion, uh, sorry, traditional categories uh, like class, religion and even political affiliations. And at that time, these things during the 60s seemed up for grabs, seemed um, uh, relics of the past to some extent anyway. These traditional categories, I think, were being challenged at this very time. But in the 1960s, and here we have clear echoes of World War I, uh, the issue of compulsory military service overseas was at the heart of growing opposition to the war. We're talking about the National Service Scheme, which was introduced in 1964, November 64, and lasted until 1972. 20-year-old men were required to register for national service according to uh, the scheme. It was a socially significant thing uh, 800,000 Australians during that period uh, registered. Uh, 64,000 were called up and 15,000 served in Vietnam. 200 out of the 500 or so Australians killed in Vietnam were national servicemen. And by 1968, uh, half of our forces in Vietnam were national servicemen. This is uh, Reconciliation Week, of course. I should mention here that Aboriginals were specifically exempted uh, through legislation from uh, participation in the National Service Scheme. 
the uh, the legislation went into a great went into a significant amount of detail uh, as to what an Aboriginal was at the time, which is of course a, a relic of a, another time as well. But whatever the case, they were exempted. Uh, nevertheless, we as, as an aside, we happen to know that around 150 or so Aboriginal men did in fact serve in Vietnam through voluntary channels. The National Service Scheme I'm talking about is the was the, the fourth in Australian history. Uh, we have one, the first from 1911 to 1929. It was mainly, apart from the war years, uh, mainly involved youth training and service in the militia. In the Second World War, we had the second uh, uh, national service scheme from 1942. Uh, the third uh, in Australian history was from 51 to 59. Despite the Korean War falling within that period, uh, this scheme didn't involve service overseas. Uh, it involved 18-year-old men uh, doing three to six months uh, uh, full-time service. And the fourth scheme was from 64 to 72, which is the one we're concentrating on. Only the first and the fourth were controversial, in any sense unpopular. Uh, the first, interestingly, was initially unpopular. Uh, only uh, about half, as I recall, uh, of those who could register did so. Uh, there may be a couple of reasons here. Again, at that time, class was important. There's also uh, a possibility of some sort of antipathy towards state coercion at the time. So only the first and the fourth, when the first was uh, divisive and unpopular, only the first and the fourth pertain to were about a war overseas and a potentially at least unpopular war overseas. That's the commonality there. These are the conscription balls themselves, uh, where we get the name the birthday ballot from. Tw uh, 20 year olds, as I mentioned, registered, uh, and the balls uh, had numbers on them which pertained to days of the year, uh, and if uh, the day of the year on which your birthday fell was drawn, then you were called up for national service. This was the, the process. Uh, the balls are being placed in, uh, in, in an apparatus, which, now this is pretty surreal. This, this is kind of something uh, out of Catch-22. This very apparatus, this, this uh, very barrel, was used for Tattersall Lottery drawers too. Um, all right, let's, with that excellent image behind us, um, let's uh, talk more about the fourth scheme which was introduced in November 1964. Now, conservative historians deny that the introduction of national service at the time had anything to do with the Vietnam War. You will pick up an official history and you'll read something like this. Although it is commonly supposed that the introduction of uh, conscription uh, pertained directly to Vietnam, this was just not the case, simply not the case. These, these sorts of words. Um, there is, I guess, something to be said for, for such a view. Um, the main uh, conflict, the overseas conflict that Australia was involved in at the time was something which is uh, now ben beneath the radar, I think. It was the Indonesian confrontation, which lasted from 63 to 66. Um, 
largely on the island of Borneo. I guess the confrontation can be seen as the last colonial British Empire war that Australia was involved in. So there's an interesting shift uh, going on there. Um, in 65, an Australian battalion was in fact sent to, to Borneo. Uh, not national servicemen, though. I think, though, that that thesis that, uh, of the uh, lack of any connection between conscription and Vietnam is, at the very least, a bit disingenuous. Um, Australia was in, already involved in Vietnam. We had an Australian Army training team of 30 men there from 1962. Uh, and in 1964, uh, Australian caribou aircraft uh, were in Vietnam, uh, based at Vung Tau, near, near Vietnam. Uh, and in 1964 also, the training team was augmented by another 30 men. Uh, I think what we really have to do here is look at the timing, the, the sequence of events. Okay, we've got um, conscription uh, introduced in November 64. The first birthday ballot, the first example of, of, of this, uh, was held in March 65. In April 65, Prime Minister Menzies uh, announced that Australian troops would be sent to Vietnam. And in May 65, the government legislated that national servicemen uh, would be sent overseas. There are lessons from World War I here. It was felt by some that Billy Hughes had made a mistake in World War I in, uh, in calling a referenda on the issue that he could well have just introduced uh, conscription through, through Parliament. Uh, and so this is, I think, uh, uh, a reference to that, that perceived mistake. As I recall, the Governor-General, uh, Munro Ferguson, felt that Billy Hughes should have proceeded in that less divisive, less, perhaps less controversial uh, way. Let's come to the nub of the matter now. Uh, let, let's think about responses to conscription, to national service, and to the Vietnam War in, in general. There was initially a kind of a passive acquiescence. Conscription uh, was accepted. There are a couple of reasons for this, I think. I, I suspect it had acquired a legitimacy in uh, World War II. I think it's also perhaps significant that the scheme, the third scheme that had lasted from 51 to 59, had been relatively benign. Whatever the case, in 64, less than 1% uh, of those required to register uh, failed to do so. So we have only muted opposition at this, uh, at this stage. Amongst the opponents of conscription and, and the war, um, there was a feeling that this opposition should be expressed through the electoral process. And there are echoes of World War I there again, of course. Uh, and the aim was to bring the Labor Party to power in the 1966 uh, federal election. Arthur Corwell, the leader of the Labor Party, again echoing World War I, I think I echoed myself then, um, uh, maintained, said publicly, that the 1960, 1966 election would be a referendum on conscription which was a mistake because uh, uh, the Labor Party was totally defeated uh, at that election. It's hard to say why, um, possibly because most people were at that stage still pro-war, pro-conscription. 
Many of you will remember Arthur Caldwell as well, though, and you will remember that he was an immensely uncharismatic figure. Um, so I, I, think, I think that might have had something to do with it too. Here's the thing, though. Um, defeat in, in the election changed the nature of, of opposition to, uh, to, to the war and to uh, national service. Opposition became more organised. It became more public, more radical and more effective. We can, in fact, I think, see uh, the federal elections uh, during this period as milestones or probably a better metaphor would be dividing points uh, in the uh, overall anti-conscription uh, movement. We can see a first period, um, which I've referred to, up to 1966. A second period from 66 to 1969. In 1969, <clears throat> excuse me, a um, reinvigorated Labor Party under Gough Whitlam nearly won. And we can see a, a third period from 69 to 72 when the Labor Party did come to power and conscription was in fact abolished. The third period is probably the one we know about. Um, we know that in 1970 uh, there were huge moratorium marches through, uh, in, in the capital cities. Uh, uh, I think 100,000 are supposed to have marched in Melbourne, for example. Uh, at this stage, uh, we were winding down our involvement in Vietnam too. In 1970, Prime Minister Gordon had announced, Gordon had announced uh, a, a withdrawal, ultimate withdrawal of Australian uh, troops. And this process was continued in 71 and 72 by McMahon. That's the third period though. By then, things had changed. During the second period, 66 to 69, we have a period of change. This is why it's interesting, I think. Uh, things were up for grabs, I think, in, the, in that, uh, at that time. And the great thing about this exhibition that we, we uh, put together is that being centred on, on 1968, it, it enables us to see aspects of, I guess, the nature of opposition to war and to national service. During this, what I would suggest is an important, a dynamic, a liminal period. So let's go to a couple of, of items from the exhibition. This is a Save Our Sons demonstration in Canberra. We can actually see Mount Ainsley in the background and it's the King George V Memorial, I think, which has now been moved. Um, nice pun, isn't it? Sons for Johnson. Now, um, Save Our Sons were formed within weeks of Menzies' announcement that Australian troops would be sent overseas. As you can see, it, uh, Save Our Sons as a movement consisted of middle-class, uh, middle-aged women who would otherwise have been socially conservative. This is significant. Um, uh, this is probably the first time since World War I again that we have the involvement of women in public political life. Uh, Save Our Sons was not an ideological movement. Uh, their opposition to war centred around the concept of motherhood. This is a... a Saverson's demonstrations at this time were gen generally, uh, unlike student demonstrations, they were silent vigils. This is one outside the Marrickville uh, Army Depot in, si in Sydney, where those called up were, uh, were required to assemble. 
Um, and this is the banner which we had at the beginning, which we have in our exhibition, the, the very banner from uh, a, a, a Save Our Sons demonstration. Now, I mentioned that Save Our Sons was not an ideological movement. It was nevertheless accused of pro-communist leanings. When I was researching uh, Save Our Sons, looking through their significantly, uh, significant archive, um, I came across uh, an envelope, a really fat envelope, called Fan Mail. And I thought, what the hell is this? Um, I, I opened it and I, I found that it was a, uh, an entire collection of vituperative um, material that had been sent to the, the organisation. And we have a couple of examples here. These are relatively tame. Um, we have, um, I'll go straight to this one. Uh, we have crude gender roles here. Um, you old goats should get back into the, into the kitchen. More important, I think, even than that, is the proposition that communists are about to overthrow, uh, overrun the, the free world. In, in this one, although it's difficult to read, there are specific analogies drawn between the, uh, the Japanese in World War II and the communists in, 19, in, in the 1960s. We can also see here, by the way, um, this is a, a foundation document, really, of uh, Save Our Sons. This emphasises just how socially conservative, I think, apart from their stance on the war, this organisation was. Here we see the women in, in question referring to themselves just by, uh, by their surnames, which would be their, their husband's names, uh, as Mrs. something or other. They don't, don't even use their, their, their first names. Um, we're a long way from, from Ms, aren't we, here? Um, I myself um, remember watching the TV news uh, during this period with my mother um, and there was a story on Save Our Sons on the TV news. My mother was a nailed on, uh, what is it, it's rusted on, I think that's the, the cliche, a, a rusted on Labor voter. Um, nevertheless, in, interestingly, she was still anti-communist, uh, as most middle-class people were. So there was a story, I was just a child sitting next to a TV news story on Save Our Sons, um, and my mother turned to me and said, those Save Our Sons uh, women, they're communists. Um, so this would have been the, gen the, gen the general perception at, at, at the time. And of course, at the time, that is about the most pejorative thing that anybody can say. Um, During this important middle period, 66 to 69, we also have uh, in Australia the emergence of the conscientious objector. The conscientious objector, almost individual stereotype, uh, if you like. The, um, the, the first prominent one uh, from 1966 was, was Bill White. Um, I just love this picture. Um, the, the body language is magnificent, isn't it? This is Bill White being dragged off. Um, um, you can just look at the gestures of the, the individuals in, que in question. We can see uh, a generation gap th uh, thing going on there as well. Um, poor old Bill White's, uh, I, I guess, a, a, just a victim, isn't he, in, 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 this, uh, uh, in this image. The conscientious objector that we uh, dealt with in our exhibition, though, was Simon Townsend, uh, who in 1968 
was, was sentenced to uh, 28 days in Holsworthy Military Prison, where he was subject to brutal, degrading treatment, uh, sleep deprivation, solitary uh, confinement, and uh, when news of his treatment got out, there was in fact a public outcry, and uh, things were changed from that point. Um, conscientious objectors would be uh, held not in military prisons, but in, in civilian jails, where it was felt it's hard to believe this is the case, but it, they would be treated much better. Um, when we think about um, White and Townsend, we're talking about um, middle-class, well-educated people. Uh, I guess we could all, to use a, a term from the Times, they're professionals. Um, Bill White was a, a school teacher. Simon Townsend was a trainee journalist. We have here a conscientious objection based not on authority, but on individual ratiocination. Your typical uh, conscientious objector in World War I or World War II would have been a Quaker, uh, somebody who didn't believe in killing uh, because of the authority of God or the Bible. Here we have individuals making their own choices without uh, references to external authorities. This is probably the way ethics had been going since the Enlightenment. Um, when the, and as we all know, the task of ethics today, since the Enlightenment, is to come up with a viable modus vivendi without external authorities or without God. But this is the first time, as far as I know, that style of thinking uh, showed itself within the anti-war movement. Townsend and White were thoughtful, articulate people, and they were able to construct compelling, sophisticated arguments against war. Townsend went on a, a, a tour of East Coast Australia and, and inland cities as well after he was released from uh, prison uh, uh, later in 1968. There was a, another conscientious objector at the time, uh, a fellow called uh, John Zarb, who uh, is something of a contrast with Townsend and White, insofar as his ideology, uh, his motivation seems to be left-wing ideology. He was a postman and he was assisted in his uh, conscientious objection by his union. So in this... Uh, interesting middle period, 66 to 69, we also have uh, anti-war sentiment, anti-war activity driven by uh, left-wing ideology uh, as, uh, as uh, part of the union movement. Echoes of World War I here uh, again, of course. This is a pamphlet produced in 1968 by the Communist Party of Australia. It was issued within weeks of um, the Tet Offensive. This is the famous, of course, Tet Offensive execution um, uh, image. I guess this one and the children fleeing from the napalm attacks are the dominant images from the, the period, both profoundly anti-war, of course. I won't leave it on that uh, for very long. Um, it's a horrible image, isn't it? Um, I mentioned... Uh, universities and education. This is the final object I want to show you today from uh, our 1968 uh, exhibition, Make Love, Not War. Um, this is a pamphlet produced 
uh, at Sydney University in 1968. Um, it situates uh, anti-war sentiment within 1960s counterculture, of course. We can, if we look closely, we can see that the people in question are smoking huge spliffs, of course. Um, I want to finish just by suggesting that uh, all these forces, the uh, longer standing forces, echoes of World War I, and new things that emerged in 1968, uh, gathered together, uh, coalesced. Um, they certainly brought anti-war feelings to the surface, but even more importantly, they changed public opinion. And this idea of a change in public opinion is is what I want to conclude with today. I found in my uh, research for uh, 1968 exhibition that uh, a, a Morgan Gallup poll conducted in December 1968 showed that for the first time, the majority of people in Australia did not support our involvement in the Vietnam War. This is um, a significant thing, of course. It's even more significant because, just between ourselves, um, Morgan Gallup polls at the time were framed in such a way that was uh, supposed to provoke a pro-government response to the questionnaire. Of course, I'm speaking publicly now, so I have to say that it wouldn't be the same, it wouldn't be thus now. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have any fingers crossed or anything. Um, uh, so it was especially significant that, it, 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 given those uh, constraints in those circumstances, for the first time, most people in Australia no longer supported the war. This, this emphasises, of course, that 1968 is a period of changing times. So I think, um, in conclusion, we can see, in general and from that opinion poll, that in 1968, times were a-changing and that Australia was changing with them. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you very much, Walter. I thought you were going to burst into song there for a moment. <laughs> um, it's still time, bro. <laughs> uh, we have time for a few questions, and indeed we may get some, because we're streaming this event as well. Yes. Just a uh, wait, a could you just wait for the microphone, please? Thank you. Thank you very much, Walter. I was 29 in 1969, and I wish I'd heard your lecture then. <laughs> However, I did take part in the anti-Vietnam uh, uh, demonstrations. But I just wanted to ask you, the anti-communism of Australia at that time, how far was that the result of American anti-communism and the media? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for the question. Uh, that what they were significant elements in the anti-communism at the time. We must also remember that there was uh, a conservative Australian sentiment which largely looked to Britain. I'm talking about Prime Minister Menzies here, who was himself profoundly anti-communist too. So it wasn't necessarily uh, American and, and media certainly. But um, I think we can see it um, as, a, as a Western world thing, thing strangely, um, rather than specifically an American thing. Or we can even turn it around and see the intense anti-communist um, agitation in America as a subset of worldwide 
uh, anti-communist feelings. Thanks, John. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm interested to know that how many people just didn't want to go to war because they didn't want to die. Yeah. And in that regard, was there... My son said this to me and I hadn't thought about it until he said it to me, but people who didn't want to go to the war, couldn't they have just gone down to the conscription bench desk, gone down with a friend, said I'm gay, kissed them on the lips and got an exemption? Was there... I mean, it just seemed to me that would be the obvious loophole out of the whole ordeal. Yeah. And I was wondering if that got explored in your research. The short answer is no. It, 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 it wasn't explored. Um, you were... And, and my feeling is that even if you, if you had, had behaved thus, um, it wouldn't have worked. Um, because uh, people like Simon Townsend and Bill White um, had good reasons not to go to war as well. Um, and they weren't listened to. You could be uh, you could be granted conscientious objector status uh, in Australia at this time. You have to go through a legal process, but people like Townsend and White did go through that progress, and they were denied that that status. Uh, I mentioned Quakerism and so forth. That is really the only thing that would, at a kind of a starting point situation, get you out of war. Uh, sorry, please. No, it, it wasn't. Uh, as far as I know, it was never, uh, never an issue, uh, either for or against, uh, as it were, at the time. You mentioned um, the idea of people just not wanting to die, um, which is an interesting one. Um, but it's, it, it's an argument from silence, really. Nobody ever says that, um, which, which is, I think, itself uh, significant. 